Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on uh, Women in Sustainability Design the Future. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And we are back. Uh, it's a new day. It's a new dawn. It's 2021. So uh, yeah, excited to be here. How, how are you doing, Kira? How was your holiday? Holiday was good. I'm doing well. I am, of course, though, our resident defensive pessimist. <laughs> um, and I, yeah. I'm in the zone right now where I really feel like, I mean, I'm excited that everybody's excited about 2021 and there are a lot of exciting things happening, but, um, in terms of life in pandemic, I feel like 2021 is going to feel like 2020 for quite some time. So <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of in that place. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I feel optimistic and excited about vaccines, but the rollout is slow and I just feel like we have a ways to go. <laughs> Oh, that, totally. So. Yeah, yeah, we really do. And and I and I think I was just starting to get a taste of what this is going to feel like reading about some of the politics of vaccine distribution. You yeah. know, like it, like wow, it's going to be a difficult year in so many ways, not in just because, ways, yeah. you know, yes. people continue to to die and this is you know, the hospitals are overloaded and all of that right now, but also just because is such a, you know that some of the, <laughs> while some of the best of humanity will come out, some of the worst will also. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it's going to yeah. be a lot. On the other hand, I would say, I mean, my the flip side of that for me is that my view as sort of, as part of the climate action and sustainable buildings movement and the AEC industry generally is perhaps that maybe better reflects my Midwestern optimism. I feel I like there's great potential ahead and I'm very excited for a lot of things that are coming soon. Um, yeah, I just yeah. was reading a piece in Architects newspaper from uh, yesterday, um, which had some observations from a bunch of AEC leaders on the prospects for the Biden administration and things like that. Um, and I have to say, I've never been so excited about policy and advocacy in my life as I am right now. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, that, that's that's my jams right now, especially. Um, but I also, it's funny, I was reading a little bit about the differences and similarities in what happened when Obama came into office and what's happening now. And and for for many reasons, I'm sure, one of the tones that I can sense that's different, and maybe this is just who I listen to, but it's that people understand that now they have to help the president and the administration yep. uh, get this work done. That it's not like, oh, we elected Obama so we can just hang out and wait for him to change our world for us. I feel like there's a little bit more of a sense of responsibility that's shared, and I hope that is maintained through 2021 and beyond uh, that level of engagement that we had in just getting people elected in the first place, you know? I agree, absolutely. I feel that, I hear that um, even, you know, at AIA around advocacy and how we look at that and how we see the role of, you know, professionals to step up and into that space rather than hoping that it will be defined by the lawmakers and, and hoping that, that you know, design and construction issues will be looped into things rather than, you know, we can help them define that. We don't have to wait. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is exciting. And and I think in some ways, I mean, that the pandemic actually could, could and is already helping with that. Um, there was a piece 
in Bloomberg City Lab before the holiday by the mayors of New Orleans, um, Latoya Cantrell and Boston, Marty Walsh, in which they were arguing that the COVID recovery itself must begin with climate action. And so to me, that just shows there's this sort of coming together, this unification. We've been talking a lot about that mm -hmm. on this podcast, yeah. of course, but that unification really is promising to me. I really, I, have, I see a lot of hope there. Yeah, yeah, I do too. I mean, it's it's because because we're appreciating it for the system that it is uh, to some degree. That's always the way that I get excited when people stop thinking of the single issue argument and kind of try to think about how we solve a set of problems together. And America certainly, I mean, the world really, but America in particular has a set of problems that are very interconnected right now. And the more I think we can kind of stick with that perspective, uh, the I don't know, the more progress we can make, um, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, it seems like it would be silly for us to keep chatting about this, just you and I, without introducing our guest for the day, because Indeed. we could not have a more perfect, perfect guest uh, to be having this conversation with. Um, today, we have Annika Landroneau with us from HOK. Welcome, Annika. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is going to be a lot of fun. So I'll just um, share with everyone a little bit about Anka in case you don't know her. She leads HOK's global sustainable design practice. She serves on the firm's board of directors and the design board there. Uh, she's based in Washington, D.C., where she serves locally on the Green and Energy Codes tag and is appointed to the Mayor's Green Building Advisory Council and co-chairs the Building Energy Performance Standard Task Force. Very exciting. And at the national scale, she sits on the 2024 Code Development Committee for the International Energy Code Committee, um, the IECC, among many other things that she does at the national level. So obviously we have someone here who appreciates the importance of advocacy and getting involved in the public process. And we're gonna talk a lot about that. Um, but Annika, before we get into the, the real nerdy stuff, you wanna just tell us a little bit about your path, how you got into architecture, how you got into sustainable design, all of that? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, architecture is something I was, uh, I, I guess, always interested in, um, but more importantly, I think, is how it led me to sustainability. And I, when I was in school, you know, there wasn't at that time a concentration in sustainability like you have now. Um, there are programs where you can you can you know, minor in it or you can get a degree in sustainable, sustainable design. Um, that didn't exist, uh, but I was starting to learn about the impact our buildings have on the environment. Um, you know, three quarters of landfill were full of demolition and construction debris. Um, you know, the 40% um, of greenhouse gas emissions coming from the building sector. Um, all of those types of things, those statistics were available. You know, that data was available and it was starting to become, you know, um, we were starting to be informed of it. Uh, and so I was learning of that and it wasn't being taught, like how to address that information wasn't being taught in our studios. Uh, and so I remember thinking at the time as a student, you know, if we, the next generation of architects, you know, learning how to design buildings, aren't prepared to go out and do something about this, like who's going to do it, you know, um, if we get out of school and we're not going to do something, then what's going to be done? Um, but yet we weren't, you know, really being prepared to address it. And I was always impassioned about environmental issues. And so, um, you know, really was sort of want to do something about this. Um, LEED was very nascent at the time. Um, I think it had really just rolled out. Uh, I did get my LEED credential while I was still in school. 
Um, it was one of the first exams <laughs> that they offered. Um, and so, uh, you know, when I got out of school, I really wanted to focus on green buildings. Um, I, I was in Texas. I, I was born and raised in Houston. I, I always kind of joked that there were more um, architects interested in doing green buildings than clients probably back in Texas during the day. But um, at that time, um, but I did, we had a pediatrician uh, as a client um, who we ended up doing the first um, privately funded LEED certified healthcare facility in the state of Texas uh, for her because she felt like she read an article uh, about green buildings and said, you know, I'm working on children's health. Like, of course, you know, I should be doing a green building. It seems obvious, you know, once you understand what's going on and it should be obvious. And yet there's people who, who, to whom it's not. Um, but, you know, I, it, I was the champion for this in my practice. Uh, I wasn't a firm that focused on green building, but I would at my lunch break, like, you know, brown bag, like teach my colleagues about green building and need. And, and, um, and I really just wanted to, you know, focus on green buildings and, 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 more importantly, climate change, more full-time. And so I started applying for climate-focused jobs in Washington, D.C. I felt like, you know, I applied for jobs at the Green Building Council, but other organizations as well, and um, got a job at a climate policy think tank. And uh, so I moved to D.C. where, you know, all the action is. And um, so that was not architecture related. And I sort of thought, well, maybe I'll just be working in climate policy or climate change, you know, uh, work. Uh, and I won't be an architect, you know, um, but uh, that was 2005. And uh, I got to say, you know, there was the Energy Policy Act of 05, which had a lot of building requirements in it for the federal sector. Um, DC passed its Green Building Act in 2006. And then uh, in 2007, there is the Energy Independence and Security Act, which um, also impacts federally funded buildings. And so you had sort of boom, 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 you know, federal, local, federal policies, legislation that impacted uh, buildings and building requirements. And so suddenly there was this demand for green building expertise um, and not enough people who were there to, to do it. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, and so couldn't have prepared for that. Didn't know. I remember when I was in school, people told me I'd never find a job uh, doing this kind of thing. <laughs> and suddenly there was, in fact, um, the ability to create uh, not just a job, but a career um, focusing on high performance buildings and sustainable buildings. And so, you know, as they say, the rest is history. I, I love, by the way, that like that you started off in this career with people telling you you wouldn't be able to find a job. I had that experience as well. My parents were very concerned, like green building is just not a thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No very one's gonna hire to you to do that. that. Yeah. yeah, you don't make any money. And I said, oh, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta follow yeah. your heart. You gotta do what you think is important. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's terrific, Annika. Um, and it, it makes me wonder too, I know um, a lot of people think about the path of becoming the sustainability specialist in a firm. And I'm wondering what advice you would offer to, to those folks. What should they be good at? What should they be interested in? How should they sort of carve that path? I do informational interviews all the time with uh, students and young professionals. And um, I think one of the most important traits is entrepreneurialism, um, because you are, by definition, asking your clients to try new things. You know, you're asking them to try new technology, a new method of design or construction, new materials, um, because obviously if it was their standard way of building or developing, they would already have greener buildings. You know, you're asking them to try something different. Maybe it's a net zero building, maybe it's just a lead platinum building, but you're asking them to branch out um, and innovate. 
And so that is risk. And, and to them, you know, our developer clients or our institutional clients, they're risk averse, um, you know, for good reason. They're stuck with this asset for decades and they don't want it to leak or fall down or fall apart. And so um, you have to be good at, you know, co convincing people to try something new. And so that that entrepreneurial spirit, um, that ability to um, bring people along uh, is really important. Um, and so, you know, the, the firm may not have a, a role specifically dedicated to uh, green buildings or sustainability. And I think that's okay, you know, um, to take that job and, and be like I was, you know, be that champion uh, for green buildings, help your colleagues learn about it, um, help your clients learn about it, uh, and create that role for yourself. I think that's, you know, actually probably a better path because we need more people um, doing that exact thing. We need, uh, and, and too many firms aren't large enough actually to support that kind of role full time, um, you know, just from the get go, but you might actually create that demand. Um, they say sort of, um, you know, um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, but I think in this case, you know, it could almost be like invention is the mother of necessity, right? Like if you help create that role for yourself by showing up and, and being passionate about green building and sustainability and educating your, your peers and your colleagues and your clients, you might actually help create that demand, you know, and help them understand why they need that expertise and you might help um, create that role for yourself. And so um, I think that's really important. Um, but, uh, you know, that being said, um, that, that's a, you know, important trait to have, even if the role does already exist. Mm -hmm. um, you just understand that if you don't have the experience, it is hard to convince, um, you know, clients or firm, you know, to hire you without that experience because our clients being risk averse, you know, they're going to say, you know, how many projects have you tried this on before? And if you say, well, I read about it in a textbook and it should work in theory, or I read about it in a publication or an article, um, they're going to say, well, maybe on my next project. So, um, you know, but if you say, I just did this on my last three projects, they're like, great, let's do it. You know, next question. So that's why I say, you know, don't be afraid to take that job that seems just like a traditional standard job and then you know, become the green person. Um, don't, don't worry about that. That's an okay path. It doesn't mean that's not going to be a career. Um, just understand why it might be harder to get that first foot in the door job as a sustainability specialist. That being said though, I think there's a lot more demand. The, the um, green building movement has, and, and industry have grown uh, quite a bit. And so I think there are a lot more entry level positions for folks without uh, experience, which is a great thing. So you don't, you know, don't feel like it's a catch 22 and you can never get the experience. Right. It's interesting. I, th I think what you said is, is true. And um, I, I think we're seeing a lot of sort of small and medium firms that maybe aren't known for sustainability work. But when young people come in and have that interest, they are willing to let them run with it because they see that part of the market really expanding. Right. So that's sort of I mean, it's, it's interesting to see that as part of the kind of practice transformation that's underway. Um, I'm curious about how you decided to get involved in sort of the larger issues of the industry and the profession and how it works. I mean, I'm sure some of that was rooted in your climate policy job that you described, but how did you, within, once you were back working in a firm, like how did you decide to sort of ramp that up into these broader issues about how the industry and the profession are functioning? Well, you know, one of the common things we always hear from our, you know, peers in the design industry is 
you know, I would do green building, but the clients don't want it or the code doesn't require it. So we're not doing it. They, they say just design the code. Well, you know, if you hear that refrain over and over again, it's like, well, then the code needs to change, right? Or, you know, it, it's either the code isn't stringent enough or the code won't allow me to do something. Um, the code bans, you know, the use of waterless urinals or low flow X, you know, or reuse of, you know, treated water. Um, I hear that kind of thing all the time. The code doesn't allow it or the code isn't stringent enough. You know, the code's either mean to me or the code <laughs> is too easy. Um, and so that, that sort of thing is like, well, then we need to change the code. If you think your clients won't, you know, do anything other than what's defined by code, then we need to make the code better, right? And, and then it, it comes back to that, you know, who's that, that position I took when I was in school. If entering the profession, you know, if we're not prepared to do something about this, then who will? I feel the same way about the building codes. Like, who do, who do people think make these building codes? You know, it's not this abstract other. It's people from the industry, right? It's architects and engineers and, and developers and, and industry you know, representatives, people from the lighting manufacturers and the insulation manufacturers. These are the people who show up and they get on committees and they help write the codes and, and write the code revisions. Uh, and, and, you know, it's building code officials and, and people who vote on these revisions. So if the only people who show up are people who are trying to maintain the status quo, we won't ever get better building codes. Uh, if the people who show up are really passionate about advancing the building codes, then we're going to get better building codes. So, you know, and the same thing about policies, whether it's, you know, green building policies, it's benchmarking, existing building performance standards, you know, if you care about this stuff, you know, show up, show up at the committee, show up at the hearing to testify, particularly private sector folks, we need them to show up and say, yep, we do this kind of thing all the time. This isn't pie in the sky. It isn't wild. It isn't expensive. We do this at market rate. This is normal construction. Uh, because policymakers, people have been lifelong, you know, um, public sector employees or, you know, work in a different uh, industry and are now sitting on their city council or county council, they may not have that experience from the construction industry. They don't know. And so they have somebody over here who's hysterical telling them it's going to cost too much. And if you don't show up and say, no, 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 this is actually not prohibitive. We do this all the time. It's no big deal. Here's some examples. If you don't show up and counter that, then they're going to believe the people who are, you know, screaming, you know, this is going to be too expensive. So we need um, great testimonials from people who are very passionate about this and have good information to share. Right. Um, that was going to be my next question is sort mm -hmm. of the, the policy and how mm -hmm. you got involved in that side of it. Um, I know that you testified um, at Cong in, um, a congressional hearing. And I think that's such a great example um, because I think a lot of particularly architects and probably other allied professionals feel like, yeah, policy and advocacy, that's not what I do. I just do my thing over here. But in fact, to your point, you know, we need them to step up and talk about what they know from what they do, right? Because those, the policymakers right. need to hear from that technical expertise and from that um, understanding. So talk a little more about that, about the policy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's to the you know it's that same idea of you know the, the other people testifying alongside me, um, you know, a couple of the other witnesses for the majority, um, they're people who work in think tanks or nonprofits, um, and so they're very smart people, but they're doing a lot of academic research. They're publishing white papers and things like that. So to some extent, the work that they're publishing, although they're, they're researching, you know, and they're collecting data from, you know, a body of work and, and constructed projects, 
I think there's a sense that the testimony coming from somebody who's like, I'm actually out there in the field building things, you know, there's a sense that that, that resonates a lot uh, with the committee, uh, in this case, the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. And so um, it's really helpful to, to have people from the private sector who do show up or, or the for-profit sector who show up and talk about their work. Um, and that actually came out of my work on the 2021 Energy Conservation Code Development Committee. Um, someone had recommended me to a uh, house staffer and they sort of interview a lot of different people to figure out who will make a good witness and, um, and you know, then pull their witnesses together. So, um, you know, it's great to be, to be asked. The downside of that is, you know, those folks who work for the nonprofits and the think tanks have staff who can pull their testimony together, and I don't have that because it's not my full-time job. So I had to spend a lot of nights and weekends um, pulling my testimony together, and uh, so that was, you know, sort of my, my second job, if you will, until, um, until that, that hearing. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it's really important to see this type of legislation, to some extent, creating the demand for the types of buildings we want to see built, or the types of policies that will drive the renovations to our existing building stock that we want to see. Um, we know in our cities and urban counties that buildings are responsible for anywhere from 50 to 75% of carbon emissions. And so we're seeing a few really, you know, leading cities pass uh, existing building performance standards um, that will address those emissions and emission reductions to meet their, you know, whether it's they signed on to the Paris Agreement or they're part of C40, um, but to meet those commitments that they've made to getting to lower carbon or zero carbon. But, you know, we can't just do it with just a couple cities alone, right? We need to get, get to this across the entire country. And so we need federal participation. We need good federal legislation. And so um, being able to take my experience with buildings, building codes, you know, existing building retrofits, my work on the Energy Code Committee, my work with DC's Building Performance Standard, um, and be able to put all that type of information together and, and talk to Congress about that and where they could go next um, was really great. And they reached out to me months later and said, if we were to, you know, pass something nationally, what might that look like? You know, would it be mandated, incentivized? Would it be state by state? Would it be one big national umbrella policy? You know, really talk through what they thought, you know, what my thoughts were. And I'm sure they were talking to others as well. Um, but it was great to see recommendations from myself and the other, you know, witnesses on the panel make it into their report um, and to have them reach out for feedback. And then to see a lot of that show up in the Biden, you know, clean energy plan, which I hope, um, you know, with this next uh, Congress uh, that is um, starting in the new year, uh, I hope to see um, make its way into actual legislation that gets passed. So um, really exciting stuff. That. Yeah, <laughs> really exciting stuff. Yeah, man, that is very exciting. I feel like I, I just want to say like, amen after all of it. But uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm yeah. also just really impressed that you had to compile your own testimony. It's great. It's if anyone hasn't, uh, I'm sure a lot of people haven't actually sat and listened to the whole thing, or read it. Um, but I recommend it for sure. Um, it's a really impressive piece of work. So well done doing that in your spare time. That's badass. Um, and it, it leads to me to our next question for you. Um, you know, feel free to say that thing. But um, what are you most proud of accomplishing in your work life? It could be anything personal, professional, testifying in front of Congress, whatever you want to say. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit related, but, um, you know, locally in D.C., and, you know, when I moved from Houston to D.C. Um, about 15 years ago, I, um, a little over 15 years ago, I guess now, 
um, I had a really broad network uh, professionally in Houston. I, I, I knew every, everyone. I could show up at a, you know, AIA code event or a USUBC chapter event or, you know, anything, and I knew half the room. And, and it's a little intimidating to show up in a new city, particularly the national capital, right, and, and not know anyone, uh, have no relationships, you know, and think, am I going to be able to build that all over again? Uh, and and I have to say, I, you know, it's this is a great DC is a great city. Um, I was able to rebuild a professional network much more quickly than I expected to. Um, I think in part because people do come from all over the country and all over the world, and they all know what it's like to be the new person in the room. Um, people having great, um, you know, it was easy to create those relationships and friendships and and partnerships. Uh, but I've been working with the district on implementation of the Green Building Act since 2008, um, you know, for a couple of years as a consultant and then as a member of that Green Building Advisory Council, um, now on the BEPS task force and, you know, also, um, uh, you know, on the codes committee and have been so working with the D DC for years to kind of help it reach its uh, sustainability plans through buildings, right? Um, and so uh, really proud of that. And I've now, um, as of this past year, one from the local USGBC chapter, two uh, awards in government policy and advocacy, and, um, and this past year won the mayor's, um, the DC Sustainability Award, and it was the only award they gave to an individual and not a whole organization. And so um, I guess it's th three things, but I guess just really proud that um, it's it's not a a building design that I won an award for. It's the, my, my work in policy and advocacy and that I was able to do it in this sort of adopted community that I relocated to and didn't know anyone 15 years ago when I got here. And I, I was able to, to accomplish, you know, some really great things. I'm still working on it, right? Like it's not like I'm done, you know, uh, it's all over, but that I was able to um, create a body of work um, that was uh, recognized and awarded um, by, you know, my local chapter here in the DC government for being a meaningful contribution to this community. So that's what I would say. I love that. I love that. I mean, it, you know, just the whole, the wholeness of it, the fact that it has so much to do with building up uh, relationships in a community and having that community around you. It's, that's beautiful. Um, thank you. Well, so um, let's talk about what's happening these days with you is there a project that you want listeners to know about that you're working on right now? What are you cooking up? Yeah, so um, earlier this year, you know, this summer, we had a lot of activity um, after the George Floyd uh, murder and uh, a lot of protests and a really good, I think, and long overdue national discussion about equity and um, and uh, racial equality. And I, I still think we haven't achieved it in the design industry and equitable design you know there's a lot of things that we need to talk about i mean there's both equitable hiring practices and in, in design firms um but what does it really mean in design um you know to to achieve equity and and you know there's universal design and there's you know all kinds of different um forms that take but racial equity right and so um you know i started looking at, into um, environmental justice and thinking about you know this sort of the impacts the, the impacts of what we do and how we design and the communities that feel those impacts it's often disparate from the location where we're actually constructing a project 
And so, um, you know, if I build something and it's consuming energy and that energy comes from a coal-fired power plant, that plant is usually not next to my building. And so the emissions that come out of that power plant, the NOx, the SOx, PM2.5, those are somewhere upstream. And the community that lives next to that power plant that's, that's suffering from asthma and respiratory issues and going, you know, kids are going to the ER, um, you know, they're most likely minority and low income and, um, and they're suffering those impacts. So if I'm working on this project and I decide not to set aggressive energy efficiency or greenhouse gas emission reduction targets, I decide to design to code minimum or um, I don't talk to my client about those things even though my AIA code of ethics tells me I'm supposed to. Um, if I don't take that up, you know, as a priority in my work, um, then who feels those impacts and what are, what's the magnitude of those impacts? Uh, you know, or let's say it's, it's natural gas um, powering my project. You know, um, what are the impacts on water quality? Um, you know, and where? And who lives on that water stream? If I'm talking to my client about site design and, you know, I don't really push for decked parking. I'm like, you know what, surface lot is just fine. Or my client's asking for help looking for a site and, you know, we end up with a greenfield site that requires transportation. You know, everybody's in a single occupancy vehicle and, and it's not transit oriented and they're traveling up and down um, a highway corridor. And how many um, VMT are we adding, you know, to the occupant's commute every day um, by choosing that location? And I had the ability to influence that decision and I didn't advocate for a better location. You know, it's not all me, it's not all my choice, but I have influence, you know, and so um, how, do we, how do we quantify the impact of those decisions? Um, some of which are, are design that we actually do and some of which are just influence over our clients' decisions. But how do we, how do we quantify that and, um, and then actually identify the people who are impacted, right? And, and put faces to it, you know, what's the demographic of the people? Where are they, who are they, you know, um, and, and what's the racial and economic makeup of those people? And so um, I reached out to a friend and colleague um, over at Stantec, uh, Rachel Bannon-Godfrey, who's great. And she, um, I believe, is chairing or co-chairing the LFRT sustainability um, group uh, this year. Um, and we started talking about it and we're like, we should uh, create like a tool, you know, that we could help measure this stuff um, and in our design, like I'm, this is status quo, business as usual. This is if I set an aggressive target. Um, this is if I meet the 2030 goals. Um, and so we were thinking about it, but you know, it's really hard, A, to design the tool and build it out and then B, to maintain it over time. So, um, so then we actually reached out to, we were like, hey, other people have already built tools and there's probably one that could just add this on as a widget, if you will, or um, a component of an existing tool. So we reached out to AutoCase, which has a triple bottom line analysis tool. They look at, you know, um, uh, people planet profit, right? And, and do analysis of projects. And we already use that tool for many of our projects and said, could you do this? And could you just um, calculate what is business as usual? Um, you know, where's the power plant serving this project? Um, if, if I met code, what, what is the magnitude of emissions? And, and who are the people who live in that neighborhood where I'm drawing my power from? Um, and then if I set targets consistent with, you know, the 2030 challenge or got to net zero, you know, so that I could show my clients, you know, this is the reduction in those impacts. And these are the people who are affected by, you know, us setting those targets or meeting those targets.
And so they were really excited. We call it the equity initiative, but they were really excited about it. And so they've pledged a, a huge amount of in-kind donation to work on this tool. Um, we've presented this to the LFRT sustainability group um, and asked for larger firms to make donations. Um, HOK is already, you know, making our do donation um, uh, and several of the firms, you know, very interested, I think, in making it. But, um, you know, we're excited. And so this will be at least this um, front end, um, you know, business as usual and target setting component will be, you know, free uh, for anyone to use to just basically help make the case. Um, once you're delving into a whole bunch of different design scenarios um, and, and using out using the rest of their tool, then you know that would be um, behind the sort of wall of their licensed uh, software. But this front end just saying, hey, if I met code or I set these targets consistent with 2030 or, or other things, you know, um, what would that look like so that you can you can quantify um, the scale of impact and you can see the demographics of the people who are impacted where they are and what they look like. Um, that is all, you know, in front of that uh, license um, uh, necessity. So we're excited about it. We think it'll be really useful. We wanted something that connects that back to design, those impacts back to the design that you're working on. Um, and so, you know, we're I just I think it'll be um, really useful. So we did reach out to NAACP. They were um, enthusiastic about it. We're, we're working with them, uh, as well as NOMA. Uh, we felt like the voices in the room should be diverse. Um, we wanted to get feedback and contributions um, from you know, practicing minority architects, as well as uh, NAACP actually did a great study on the existing power plants in the country and the impact it has on the African-American community. And that's where we got a lot of the data that, that we were using. So. Um, we wanted to make sure we were including their input in, in the tool and, and how we structured it. So um, I think it's going to be really great. And we uh, look forward to hearing from the design community and, and actually getting their, them to you know, use the tool. I love this. It's such a, it's a really novel way of approaching something that's, it's, you know, the adage about how you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, there's sort of, there's a measurement aspect to this that I think probably hadn't occurred to many of us. And I'm glad that it occurred to you. It's super cool to think about that and to see that, you know, a company like AutoCase is capable of, of how, you know, facilitating that I think also speaks to the growing power of our, of our work in, you know, in our community and being able to kind of you know, solve problems in different ways. It's, it's really awesome. And, you know, if there are listeners out there looking for what your firm could do to uh, do some charitable giving and support mm -hmm. a really great effort in our community, then now you know what one of your options are. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so um, let I, actually, before we move on, I want to make sure everyone knows what LFRT stands for. Um, I, maybe you said it, but I just wanted to double check yeah. because acronym times sure. <laughs> the large firm round table of yes. the AIA, right? And it's, it's a pretty, if you're not familiar, it's a pretty um, consistent and, and powerful group in the sense that it's representatives from all these large firms, uh, art, art, large, large architecture firms, and you get together and talk about the problems of the world. Is that a good summation? Yeah, and in the AIA um, world, large firm is 100 people and up, right? So um, you could get a pretty broad range of firm sizes within that large firm umbrella. Um, but uh, yeah, it's that is, you know, the large firm roundtable, there's different um, 
groups that meet there's you know legal groups and and sustainability groups and you know um that meet to talk about these issues that you know in in some ways um might be unique to a larger firm. In this case, equity is certainly not unique to a larger firm. We just happen to feel like, okay, we could approach this group first and say, you're a large firm. Why don't yeah. you put up some money for, for this initiative? And certainly we wouldn't turn down money from a smaller firm, but you know, felt like this is something that we were comfortable asking larger firms to contribute to first. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, all right, well, speaking of community, um, my last question for you is about um, is about our movement. Um, it's a question I like to ask our guests about the difference between what it feels like to be a part of the industry, the green building industry, um, versus what it feels like to be a part of, of a movement. And I'm curious if you feel like you're a part of just an industry or do you think of yourselves as associated with a movement? How, how do you frame that for yourself? You know, I think it's both. And, um, you know, the movement is sort of the leadership at the top, right? It's it, somebody had to be the first to um, come up with sort of green building and, and whether it was lead or, or just uh, high performance buildings or sustainable buildings, um, health and wellness in the built environment, biophilic design, uh, but leadership and innovation are the movement. And uh, as we adopt it uh, and normalize it and move it forward so that it becomes, you know, the norm and the status quo and it gets codified, people like me show up in the code committee and say, hey, like, we got the, the zero code built into the appendix of the IECC 2021. You know, that was just a, a you know, a standalone code guide document that Ed Masria came up with and, and, you know, I think he and AIA proposed that and we said, hey, let's, let's get this in as an appendix to the energy conservation code that everyone adopts, that most states adopt. I mean, almost every single state in the United States has adopted the energy conservation code. Let's get that adopted um, so that it's normalized, so that it's there, that any state that wants to pull this off the shelf has access to this zero code appendix. Um, and so as you normalize this stuff, then it's part of the industry, right? So, so at some point, low VOC paint was was a movement, right? Indoor air quality was a movement, was, you know, was at the top leadership front end. Um, but as more and more people started to re request it, to specify it, to put it into projects, um, it became the industry. Um, lead became part of the industry. Uh, it, so you need both, and you need you need people to normalize this stuff. It brings down the cost. LED lighting, you know, any of the stuff, it brings down the cost. It makes it accessible to everyone. Um, and then you go out and you say, what's the next thing? Is it is it zero carbon buildings, low embodied carbon, you know, biophilic design, whatever it is. Um, that's the movement. And then you start doing it. You adopt it. You increase adoption. You normalize it. You you know create widespread access and that becomes the industry and so like I said we're all we're all standing you know in the, kind of with one leg in each right across straddling the line <laughs> um, trying to lead the movement but also um, we are part of the industry as well that's such a powerful way to think about it Annika I think um, it I think it's helpful for people too that find that straddling sometimes uncomfortable in practice right because it is there are moments where that is challenging um, as you are trying to be a champion in a firm or as you are talking to clients um, about things that are unfamiliar to them i mean there are moments when that's that's difficult but seeing that sort of um two-track 
path of progress, as it were, is is a really interesting way of looking at it, seeing the leading edge as part of the normalization. You know, there's a, there's two things happening at the same time. I, with that in mind, and you mentioned a couple of, of areas like this, but I'm just wondering where you thought we would be in 2020 and maybe what you see as the sort of the major progress areas or major areas where there's been a lack of progress. Um, for this past year, um, you know, um, I was really excited about the momentum that we had around local building policies, like the building performance standards that were passed in DC and New York, uh, Washington State and St. Louis. And, um, you know, I thought we'd see a few more cities pick that up, but I think everyone got really distracted um, by COVID, which is completely understandable. You know, all of our local government's resources have been directed towards public health and and that's understandable so i don't want to say i'm disappointed in it that's just where i thought the momentum was headed in 2020. Um, i think that that will pick up again um it may be latter half of 2021 um as we see you know the vaccines roll out and you know things return to quote unquote normal um, however, I know part of the Biden Clean Energy Plan was also moving towards a national um, building performance standard. So it might depend on, you know, A, does that make it into um, legislation that, that passes through the House and Senate? And, and what's the timeline of that? And so if so, maybe we don't need to rely on local policy, local government. Um, and, you know, I think um, obviously there is a plan to address our existing building stock uh, also included in that. And I do think that that's going to make it into whatever this plan looks like. Um, it's just common sense. Uh, I think it, it has been historically popular on both sides of the aisle um, to address this type of issue. Uh, energy efficiency creates a lot of jobs that are domestic. You can't, you know, pack up our buildings and ship them off overseas um, to retrofit and then send them back. So... I think that we're going to see whatever um, we do moving forward, um, you know, any kind of economic stimulus package. I think it's going to include existing building retrofits. Um, you know, the, the Biden Clean Energy Plan talked about retrofitting millions of buildings, um, including institutional buildings like our schools, in, uh, including affordable housing. Um, but we know like in 2018, I think it was like 2.3 million jobs were created out of the energy efficiency sector. Um, last year, you know, um, obviously things slowed down in that area, but if you could see if there is a finance funding package, economic stimulus package that really, you know, hit this hard, um, we could create millions of jobs. When we address our existing buildings, we also are creating um, better health, better indoor air quality, better health resilience for the next pandemic or flu season um, because uh, indoor air quality really impacts our respiratory health. Uh, and just other general underlying health conditions. Um, and by creating jobs, we're giving people more economic resiliency as well. So in addition to addressing climate, you know, and clean energy, um, we're gonna be tackling the economy and, and health as well. So, you know, I really see that as an exciting time. I'm excited that the building sector could address all of these issues. Um, and, you know, as I said, I think this is gonna be popular um, with both parties when we really buckle down and get to it. Um, he also talked about Buy American and his plan, you know, um, that these retrofits would include American-made appliances and materials, there would be rebates and things like that um, associated with it. So um, I hope that that, you know, uh, sort of as a secondary or tertiary um, outcome creates jobs in the manufacturing industry and that we really see 
you know, kind of a, a, a boom out of it, um, something that gets people really excited and, and back to work. So, you know, we have to address our COVID crisis and, and vaccination rollout, you know, first, but um, I think there's uh, probably plenty of, you know, that's going to happen sooner than we think and plenty of work to do, um, you know, between now and, and a rollout of such a policy um, and a lot of detail to, to get done between now and then. So right. I'm looking forward to seeing how that how that comes to be. Absolutely. I share that anticipation. And I think that's it is it, it. It's so exciting that unification. And I'm I'm extremely hopeful that connecting so many of these climate action, broader goals to jobs and economy topics is going to be really the right way forward on a number of levels, not only because it makes it bipartisan and but also because it has a broader unification for us around understanding of the issues and how it affects us and everything. So mm -hmm. very exciting. Uh, I want to close. We have one last question for you. Um, and this is one we like to close on with a question about who you are most inspired by these days in terms of leaders. And it could be in any field or sector or anyone really. Um, oh, that's, it's always a tough one because there's so many um, people who are uh, inspirational. Um, you know, uh, I, I have to at least um, in part say uh, Marianne Lazarus uh, was the Sustainable Design Director of HOK for 30 years and really um, left big shoes, I think, for me to fill. Uh, some, of, some of your listeners may be familiar with the HOK Guidebook to Sustainable Design that, that she co-authored. Um, she still continues to do great work um, out there. Uh, you know, she worked with the AIA um, uh, as an advisor on the 2030 plan rollout um, and continues to do work in sustainability uh, on a more independent level. And I just, um, you know, she's been a hero of mine. So, uh, and then Ed Masria um, is, is a hero. <laughs> you know, his tireless um, advocacy for addressing the, the built environment and the carbon emissions associated with it. And if anybody hasn't heard his campaign around embodied carbon over the last year or two, um, it's a huge eye opener. And um, really, you know, I just, I don't know anyone else who can so succinctly distill the important message for our, our the building industry and, and help us understand why we need to do what we need to do and do it so quickly. Um, he's just a very, very smart person and great leader. And um, I'm super excited that we're, you know, I feel like all of the, all of the ducks are in a row and we're finally, <laughs> finally getting to a point where we can legislate around these ideas that, um, that we need to. And so uh, I, he's one of my most inspired, inspired per personalities, I guess, um, or leaders. For sure. Those are both great examples. Um, well, thank you so much, Annika. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Annika. It's been delightful having you here. I feel like we, it's, it's a very um, energizing way to start the year. So thank you for that. Well, thanks for having me. And it's uh, very flattering to be asked and certainly to be the first guest of the year. So I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, that is, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Welcome to 2021. We're excited to be with you for another year of conversations and keeping you company through the pandemic. Uh, thanks again to Acuity for hosting. To you all, our wonderful listeners, please review us on Apple if you get a chance. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.